0: Hi there, I'm Mikey. Hi, I'm Corey. And we're with the Retro-Indians Pop Culture Power Hour. And we are the official podcast partners of Grand Comic Fest. Grand Comic Fest is going on in Grand Island, Nebraska, April 21st through 23rd. Dude, I'm so excited for all the celebrities that they're going to have this year. they have got a great list of celebrities this year. Oh, yeah. And you know what? We're going to get to know those celebrities right here on this show. Yes, we are. So... We want to thank you guys for joining us. Please check out Grand Comic Fest on Facebook to get all the information. Or you can check out the show notes. Get your tickets. Meet us in Grand Island. We'll be in Podcast Alley. But right now, we're going to get to know one of these great celebrity guests. Because we got to interview him. Yes, we did. So please enjoy this show. And we'll see you in Grand Island. Grand Comic Fest. See you guys soon. Hey there, this is Mikey with the Retro Renegades Pop Culture Power Hour. And I'm bringing you the Grand Comic Fest Guest Spotlight Series. The purpose of this series is to introduce you to some of the great celebrity guests that are going to be attending Grand Comic Fest 5, April 21st through 23rd in Grand Island, Nebraska. You can jump on Facebook, search Grand Comic Fest, and get all the information you need on how to get your tickets And all the great events that will be going on this year at Grand Comic Fest 5. So, without further ado, let's meet this episode's featured celebrity guest. So continuing our guest spotlight series for Grand Comic Fest, which is happening in Grand Island, Nebraska, April 21st through 23rd, I am joined tonight by Mr. Daryl Skelton. How are you doing today, Daryl?
1: Not too shabby.
0: That's great. Now, you, uh, we got a lot to discuss here, I think. <laughs> You've got quite a career that, uh, that we want to showcase. So first of all, congratulations on celebrating 50 years in the business that's an impressive
1: feat I appreciate that yeah I was in uh, in Albuquerque at a convention last year and uh, a little girl was talking to me and going over artwork and things and she asked how old I was and at the time I was 68 and she said well how is it you're still alive (laughs) So, so I I thought about that and I I agreed with her it's just to her you know like she was like eight years old or something and so uh, it, it did make me think I'd been around quite a while doing a variety of things.
0: So let's, let's just go back to the very beginning. What, what lit the spark for you to get even involved in, in the art world?
1: I think I was like four years old, 1957, and Zorro was on TV,
2: hmm.
1: and Superman was still on TV. Uh, they were still showing first-run Superman episodes and uh, at the end of every Superman episode they would say Superman is based on the character appearing in Superman magazine well I didn't know about comic books at this point in my life and I just asked my mom you know hey get me a Superman magazine and I was expecting something like Life magazine with you know color photos of George Reeves and everything
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, but I My mom brought home instead a Superman comic book and a Zorro comic book. And Zorro was drawn... I didn't know the name then, and heck, I couldn't even read yet. (laughs) But Zorro was replicating the first episodes of the TV series. Now, back then, you have to realize, you know, TV was in black and white, and if you missed a show... Or an episode you wanted to see, you'd have to wait till the summer reruns. And so the only way for a kid to revisit a TV series back then were comic books. Uh, Just about every popular show had its own comic book. But anyway, I got this, and I thought it was very odd because, well, the comic was in color. And Zorro's cape on the inside was red, and that seemed strange to me. Uh, But... And the art kind of bothered me a little because it was not a real uh, solid representation of, you know, likenesses and so on. Very simple drawing, but it was done by Alex Toth, who was a master of the medium. And I was fascinated by the illusion of movement across the page and recreating that first episode of Zorro. And it fascinated me. So I started drawing and it, it took me... You know, from the time I was four until I was 20 and I graduated from art school uh, that I wanted to do artwork. And until the end of junior high, I specifically wanted to do comic books because, like I said, I got into a lot of the stuff at that point. Spider-Man came along when I was like 10 and I was enthralled by that do again once again to the illusion of movement across the page. Steve Ditko was plotting and drawing Spider-Man at that point. And I really got into it and wanted to do comics. But by the time I hit high school, the realization was that if you wanted to do comic book work in America, you had to move to New York City. And I didn't necessarily want to do that. Plus I had discovered at this point painting a scratchboard uh all kinds of different mediums and so art in general began to fascinate me and so i went to art school in omaha commuted um worked at randall super value during the day at night rather um and just uh went back and forth 83 miles a day um until i graduated from art school and shortly before that uh the last year of art school I got a job at the local newspaper, the Fremont Tribune. And I worked there at nights and the place was pretty much empty except for the typesetters. And I got to do some editorial cartoon work. And uh, there was a local pizzeria place on the outskirts of town called Andy's. And I did a few gag cartoons for his business and he really liked it. And so he gave me carte blanche uh, and I started my own local comic strip in the Tribune at that time.
0: Okay, so you, doing the local work, when, when did you decide it was time to kind of expand, kind of spread your wings and go elsewhere and try to make a, a, a real run at this career?
1: I was kind of forced to because one of the things I did when I was working at the Tribune was I was doing uh, fashion illustration, for a store called Schweizers that had, like at that time, eight stores across Nebraska. And I really enjoyed that because I was doing, my work was getting published in several newspapers across the state. Um, I was drawing not only the fashions, but I was doing uh, products and perfumes and just everything. But after two years, they decided they could close out that art department and use clip art. Hmm. And save some money. (laughs) So I was out of work. So I looked all except for my comic strip. And then I did some local freelance work. But I looked all over the Midwest for work. uh, Primarily fashion illustration because that's what I was doing at the time. But I couldn't find anything. So I had friends in California in Santa Monica who invited me to come out and look for work there. And I got a job doing portraits in the Topanga Canyon Mall and it was pure uh, commission work so I wasn't doing that well with it but the man who had the concession also got a a concession at the then new Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas so I went there and started doing portraits and caricatures and it worked out really well because you get to know a lot of people and back then you know Vegas had what they would call juice you'd get to know somebody (sighs) Who would know somebody else, mm-hmm. and so I was doing that, not making a whole lot of money, but making connections. And so, um, for instance, I did a caricature of this one guy's son, uh, gratis because we had to keep busy, and it ended up he was the son of the head Major D at the showroom. So I got to wherever I wanted to go to a free show in Vegas, and then I'd get to know somebody else, and that led to, um meeting several celebrities who liked my work, and then uh, I was hired by to be an art director for an animation studio. This was like early 1977, a uh, very dark period in our country's history, known as the disco era. <laughs> and uh, we um, we did we animated songs for discos. Oh, okay. And uh, it was kind of interesting. It wasn't on on regular film they would have a bank of uh, slides, you know, slideshow projectors mm-hmm. and there would be a computer program that would go on a tape and you'd put it in and it would flash, um, like step in drawings a second. So it was like full animation from a bank of slideshows. Oh, wow. And so we did that for, for a while. Um, I left that to do freelance work, doing the same thing for Greyhounds productions and then uh, got a job at a local newspaper the Las Vegas Sun and I was doing like you know magazine illustrations for the Sunday section uh, editorial cartoons illustrations and I, I really enjoyed it it was it was good variety of work and it got noticed by uh, some of the stars in the Las Vegas trip who would want the original artwork so I would get to be Invited to a show and then go backstage afterwards and and sit around with whoever Liberace or Shecky Green or um, Different a lot of different people called Uh, I don't brag about too much anymore, but like Bill Cosby called um, And (laughs) I guess maybe we should stick now. That's okay. But anyway, I got to do that and uh, That helped expand and get more notoriety there but I still, uh, around 1980, I still had a you know kind of a bug to do comics. So in 1980, I went to my first San Diego comic convention to look for work, and I was fortunate. I met Jim Steranko, and Jim Steranko offered me a job if I'd go to New York. Well, I again I didn't really want to go to New York. I bought my first place a couple of years earlier uh rich buckler did the same thing um so i just went around and and showed my portfolio around so anyway i went for the next couple of years there for the san diego convention and i was waiting for dick giordano the editor then editor of dc comics and there was a a guy there that was hanging around he he asked can i see your portfolio and i said sure and that was pretty standard you'd show it a million times and it really didn't mean anything but to my surprise one full year later he called me and asked me if I wanted to audition for the Dallas comic strip from the LA Times syndicate oh okay and, yeah Dallas was a big deal back then uh with Larry Hagman J.R. Ewing sure um, it was like and again, there, back at that point, there was really there weren't any, there wasn't any cable or anything. There were basically three networks. Fox hadn't even come around yet, and so it had a huge audience. So I went through a couple of auditions and won the won the role for that. So I penciled inked and lettered in conjunction with uh, the writer Jim Lawrence, who lived in New York at the time, I believe. And so I had my first nationally syndicated strip.
0: Now that was that uh, when you're doing the Dallas
1: strip, yeah.
0: Were you recreating the weekly television show in comic form, much like you saw in your younger days, or was it an original storyline using the characters?
1: Yeah, these were original storylines using the characters. Okay. So, you know, you had a lot more freedom. Okay. And I, I, it was interesting because at this point in my life, in my career, I had done you know, portraits in the Topanga Canyon mall and in in the Aladdin hotel in Vegas, I had done fashion illustration and the Dallas strip required me to do high fashion illustration and, and likenesses. So it was, you know, everything I'd led up to that point in my career, I was able to apply to the comic strip and I didn't have to leave Las Vegas. I would just mail it in.
0: Right. Now I wanted to, to go back and touch on these portraits that you did in the uh, the Aladdin Hotel. Sure. Because you you had mentioned it, that, and with the work you are doing for the Sun, um, you had said that that some of these celebrities would would contact you, like Liberace, for example. Right. Um, I, and I know I saw some pictures of you uh, drawing then boxing champion George Foreman.
1: Yes, that was interesting.
0: Yeah, do you have a uh, that seemed like that was a, a kind of a highlight in your career? What would uh, you have a story behind that, or, or about any of the celebrities that that you had uh, that you had drawn?
1: Uh, George was. This was before George became a Christian, and he uh, was a, a he just was really kind of grumpy. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: didn't do a whole lot. Uh, other people like Lou Rawls would come by, and and he'd be so cool. He. All leather, and you know, holding a cigarette and holder, and always, "Hello, ladies," you know, to the <laughs> people around. And uh, this was like when rap was just starting to come out. You know, two live crew with Luther, Luther Campbell and everything. Okay. And um, Lou Rawls, you know, when somebody mentioned rap, he goes, i call it rap crap," because <laughs> <laughs> Lou was, you know, an old-style saloon singer. Sure. And um, Liberace was interesting because. Uh, and I ended up, because of working with him, I, I dealt mostly with his brother George later on. But I was—I would do charity events at his house. Ooh. And uh, he was telling me, his house was later turned into a museum. Uh, he was telling me that when he had the house, you know, he filled it up. I mean, he had like a, I don't know, a Duesenberg or something in the entryway <laughs> uh, car. Yeah. And it really lots of memorabilia, pianos. And he said that he got to the point where he, it was too small, so he didn't want to move. So what he did is he bought the house next door and knocked the walls out and joined it into one big house. Oh. And then he said the neighbor on the other side immediately put in a swim, swimming pool in between the two houses. <laughs> he didn't want to tempt him. Yeah. He, would, he, would, um, he said he could put himself into a trance, like when he would go to the dentist you know he would just go into a trance and they would drill and he could he would be able to do that um he just uh was a really interesting guy he had a lot of a lot of stories to tell i wish i could remember all of them but <laughs> it was just kind of like that yeah uh, shecky green uh i made one mistake with shecky green we were i was backstage she uh i had drawn him as. Uh, as a, a, an opera clown and that was one of his favorite things was pagela pagelini i think it was
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um we were having a nice conversation until i mentioned at the time and this was like 1977 i think and a steve martin was just starting to hit it big okay and steve martin was you know filling filling big halls and everything uh and and Shecky, you know, had worked his way up through the cat skills and everything else, and was kind of a legendary Las Vegas performer. And I made the mistake of mentioning that I really enjoyed Steve Martin's stuff when he asked him comedy, and uh, the room temperature dropped a few degrees.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh, that was about that. But it was uh, it was still interesting to meet these people and, and and to like. I got to the point where it was nice and it was fun to do. But my real heroes were people I got to know later on, like Jack Kirby Mm -hmm. and uh, Gene Colan and and people like that. Those were my idols. And so I tried not to, you know, uh, go hamina, hamina, hamina around those people. Right. uh, Because they were the ones that that really uh, helped lead me into the career.
0: Well, you you had another uh, kind of interesting experience with portraits where you you drew a portrait of vincent price for the cassette tape the audio cassette of his beverly hills cookbook how did that how did that
2: all happen that was just
1: uh again part of being in las vegas and making the connections okay Uh, somebody there would be people would come to town and and they'd have to have something and they want they call around they want to know you know who can we get for this who has good likenesses or who does good storytelling that's why that's what happened with the cindy lopper uh thing they did a video in, in vegas for music videos which used to be done all the time and um she needed the director needed a storyboard guy and needed him you know like right now
2: mm.
1: and so they called somebody who said you know who can do storyboards here in town and in my name you know cropped up because I'd learned especially after the Schweizers thing and when I started looking for fashion illustration work I had a hard time finding it and so I had a knack for portraits and that's what I was able to do that then I learned the animation stuff and then I had to learn uh, when the animation work slowed down after a few years I had to, to do the magazine covers and then you know, later on painting, I did, I did mural work. so I guess basically I couldn't hold a job doing any one thing, (laughs) but I learned, you know, I was never really out of work because I would do something else would come along. Sure. And if you get a reputation, especially Las Vegas then was smaller than Omaha when I first got here. Oh wow. Now there's a few million people in the Valley, Mm -hmm. but back then it was, it was a small town in the sense that politically and um, working through the grapevine, you would have connections. So a person would get to know somebody who would get to know somebody. And if you had a reputation that you could do anything quickly and do it well, your name would go. And so you would have movie companies come to town, uh, video companies come to town. uh, And when they would need something, they would call some local agency, just like i did you know doing the the charity events at Liberace's house well you you get to know agents that way and so if they would need somebody for something they would call an agent and your name would be on a post-it somewhere so it was just uh, a lot of things like that and then also i knew other artists starting out at the the, uh, aladdin doing the portraits and One of the guys was an excellent uh, portrait artist and painter named Rick Parks. And I would do work with him. We would do mural work. And so this is almost like talking about Bill Cosby to some people, but we did a lot of work for Donald Trump. Uh Yeah. We did his uh, bedroom ceiling for Trump Tower. Okay. And we did stuff for Trump Plaza and for, uh, oh, the... Taj Mahal, which was gambling in New Jersey. And so we did a lot of mural work that way. And just having done that, that got me some work doing paintings for <clears throat> like the Mirage Casino. You know, I did some, st- some stuff for them because the uh, design agency that, that got us hired for the Donald Trump work needed somebody, okay, we need a painting for Uh, somewhere in the Mirage, and so I was available for that. So the networking thing in Vegas, when it was a small town, really helped you. After the town grew, you you would have a reputation of sorts.
0: Speaking of your mural work, you just worked for Siegfried and Roy, and I understand you had kind of an interesting experience with uh, maybe some of their pets there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. They had a house um, out on uh, C... West Vegas Drive not the Las Vegas Strip but West Strip, Vegas Drive There was a, it was out in the kind of the boonies at the time and they had this, this big house and they had cages where they would keep all the animals yeah. and w- they would do their show every night and what they would do is they would load all the animals into a truck that was marked danger gasoline keep back yeah. so nobody would come near them and so uh, Rick and I were to do mural work there in the backyard. Well, Rick had done done stuff in uh, both Siegfried's bedroom and Roy's bedroom and elsewhere, and then they wanted to move us into the back, the backyard. And so uh, the first time I went, there was some charity event going on and Rick and I walked through and I went into this tunnel. They had like a tunnel going uh, from the courtyard to the the, uh, backyard and I didn't realize the animals were going to be there. And there was this huge lion roar that reverberated through the tunnel when I was walking through. And it's it's like, you know, how fast can I go in the other direction with those people at the other end of the tunnel? But um, they said, oh, no, no, it's okay." You know, uh, they were locked up. And you go back and, yeah, they're in their cages. And so they had us paint, you know, in the cages that were empty. But you're doing a... You're trying to paint some flowers and things on a wall, and there's a, like a white tiger next to you, <laughs> on the other side of the bars. Uh, and so it was interesting. Uh, the other times we painted there, the animals were already gone. But that first time, it was it was kind of hairy.
0: <laughs> now, and you also mentioned the Cindy Lauper video, and I, being a you know a big fan of the music, especially in the '80s, I wanted to kind of touch on that. You you mentioned how it came about, but what was it like? to see what the, the storyboard that you had drawn kind of come to life on video? And did, was that something you did on a regular basis as like a music video type work?
1: No, not music video. I would do, you know, other things for storyboarding for like a cartoon or something. But this was something interesting because I was used to doing, you know, like the Dallas Strip and other adaptations of TVs and movies. You would, you would draw what, would, what was already done. Uh, Even though you had original stories, you know, like with Star Trek or with Dallas or any other licensed property, you would, you know, you would try to bring to life that show to a degree. But this was interesting because the director was in a hurry. They were going to shoot that dawn. And so I was sitting there batting out things in the storyboards and he, he just told me, you know, stuff out of my head. So I was drawing a part of the video where Cindy Lauper walks through this trifold mirror and mm-hmm. there was an old car in the desert with a, a black and white square tile on the, on the floor of the, of the desert and uh, old time radio and just different things that, you know, I was just popping out of my head. Well, somehow they found, you know, like a trifold mirror. And they found, they they put the tile in the desert, and they had the old car, and, and and it was so strange because all this stuff was in my head, and I would draw it from different angles as fast as I could because they had to get it out the next day. And when the video first comes on, it's really bizarre. It's like somebody had picked your brain, you know. <laughs> you're what they had taken what was out of my head and and brought it to life rather than the other way around.
0: Yeah kind of a reversal from what you're used to.
1: Yeah, and so I didn't meet Cindy because I was told, you'll you'll hear from Cindy if she doesn't like your work. Oh. <laughs> so apparently she would be upset, but uh, she seemed to like it. And so, uh, it, like I said, it was just really fun to see something out of my head come to life rather than the other way around.
0: Yeah, that, that is interesting. Um, now, we've talked about a lot of really interesting and impressive stories, and we haven't really even gotten to your big break, getting into the comic book world. How did that happen?
1: Well, it pretty much goes back to um, the San Diego Comic Convention, and like I said, in 1980, to have Jim Steranko, who is by this time pretty much a legend, offer me work if I'd go to New York, that was great. but. I Again, I had no desire uh, To go there to move there because I just started dating the woman who was going to be my wife uh, shortly before that and I just didn't feel like uh, New York was expensive. I was doing You know a, a daily comic strip. Um, I was doing all this other work I was living the life of an artist and so I just didn't feel the need to have to do that well, what happened? um and I talked to Neil Adams about this later on. Uh, he was, Neil was attempting to organize the artists. And people were getting a little nervous, uh, including Carmen Fatino, who was then the publisher at DC Comics. And so they figured we have to do something in case these artists organize. So uh, Carmen found a group in the Philippines and many of them ended up being quite regulars, especially at DC but found a cadre of artists in the Philippines that was doing work and they were mailing back and forth from the Philippines. And they realized at this point, wait a minute, this is before FedEx or any quick mail thing. They were just using the U S mail. And they thought after the threat of the artists in the U S organizing fell through, they thought, well, wait a minute, we're dealing with people half a world away. You know we might as well uh, try our luck at at dealing with artists you know around the United States so DC started a talent program and shortly before that I had developed a relationship with Rich Buckler who then was starting to to uh, relaunch the what were called the MLJ characters from the 40s the fly uh, the shield hangman different characters and he started up that Uh, they had the mighty crusaders and uh, rich contacted me and i did a story uh the fly uh for archie red circle Hmm. shortly before that and then dc contacted me and others um and us when we went to san diego the next time assigned us work kind of on a trial basis and my um, the first thing I did was a Batgirl story, which was just a trial. Uh, the second thing was a, a story called Jericho Pine about a, it was a western. And you know, other people were in this program as well: Norm Breifogel, um I'm blanking out now, but people that end up being rather famous in comics, we were all in this this program. And so that was printed and. Uh, this was around the same time I was doing the mural work. So I was kind of doing it in between, did some stories for DC. And then in, you know, flash forward to like 1988, uh, Jim Shooter hired me to do Spider-Man story. But then something happened, which would happen more than once, uh, Jim Shooter got fired. And so I was about a third of the way through my first Spider-Man story. and. Everybody that Shooter hired in in recent years was let go before we they even started. So then I went back and did some more mural work. And then DC purchased the rights to the Charlton action heroes, they called them. And one of them was the Blue Beetle. And I loved the Blue Beetle as a kid. It was, it was what Steve Ditko did after Spider-Man that I thought was almost as good as Spider-Man but Charlton didn't have much distribution or anything. So when Charlton went under, uh, DC bought the rights to the characters. So I wrote up a proposal on the Blue Beetle and drew about eight pages up and brought it to Giordano. And he said to us, you know, a lot of people want to do these characters. And uh, one of them was a guy named Alan Moore, who, uh, wrote up a proposal for the Charlton action heroes and Dick Giordano rejected it because he said, you know, this is really good, but you're killing off all these characters. Hmm. So they changed the blue beetle to the owl. They changed Doc- Captain Adam to Dr. Manhattan and they created the watchman.
2: Uh, okay.
1: And so it, to get back to where I was, uh, Dick said, well, we already have writers, but you can audition to be the artist. And so I went through that process and um, fought through. And finally, I guess I got a call from when I was doing the mural work, I got a call from Dick Giordano. And he and Solomon Dola at DC uh, <clears throat> took the stuff to the Blue Beetle stuff to show it to Steve Ditko, who created the character, because they thought he should have some input on that. And and did go picked my work which i was you know here's one of my heroes saying i was good enough to draw one of his characters and that was mind-blowing for me um and after i got done hanging up saying i got a job i got a call back from salamandola and he said i hope you realize what a big deal this is <laughs> and i said yes i do so i was given uh the opportunity to choose between two things uh either work with len ween on the on the monthly title or steve inglehart on the weekly title well at that point this is before action comics weekly there had never been a weekly comic book before so <clears throat> i jumped on doing the weekly so i was about seven issues into it and realized uh, i got a call saying they decided they weren't going to go with the weekly so this is another character just like the, another. Thing that happened like the spider-man character where the thing I really wanted to do was shot out from under me but I did get other work and so you know it wasn't like I wasn't paid for what I did and everything but there are right. certain things that I really wanted to see my name on the blue beetle you know published but I picked the wrong horse I picked the month the weekly rather than the monthly and so later on I, I've seen Paris Collins who did draw the, the monthly before it was canceled as well. And uh, he calls us the Blues Brothers because <laughs> <laughs> we both did Blue Beetle, he did Blue Devil. But anyway, uh, so I continued on doing that uh, and in 1990 went to to Marvel and was uh, doing a lot of things there. I did X-Men, Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Warlock, uh, Silver Sable, Silver Surfer. Just I don't know if I mentioned some X-Men stuff. It was uh, just uh, going through about everything that Marvel did, and during this time is when they had the Infinity Gauntlet, okay, which ended up being you know the movies later on. Sure. But I, I did a, a a Warlock with Jim Starlin where we did the origin of Gamora, the origin of Drax the Destroyer. Um, oh wow! Got to draw about everybody in that one. And so I was going along, and um, DC had a project that I worked along with Steve Carr, another artist. And DC was thinking of doing those MLJ characters again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we drew an issue of the American Shield, and they were going to launch these characters with a mini series. And so I finished the American Shield thing with Steve Carr, and then I'm on my own. I was penciling. Uh, the miniseries that was going to relaunch these characters and like it had bef- done before with the uh, S- Spider-Man, you know, years before <laughs> and the Blue Beetle, DC, DC decided not to go with it. So again, I thought, ah, too bad. But this again, talking to other people in the industry, this happened a lot. Yeah. So I was back working with Marvel and, um, <clears throat> then I asked for a raise. And the editor goes, well, you're not in our system. I go, well, what do you mean? I've got a stack of comics with my name on it. <laughs> you know? Right. Well, well, you're not in our computer system. I said, well, can you put me in your computer system? Oh yeah, sure. So they put me in the system and um, <clears throat> a week or so later, I'm working in my studio and I get a phone call and it's the editor going, congratulations, you're in our computer system. And I said, oh good, what's my raise? oh, well, you're in the system now. You don't get a race yet, but (laughs) you're (laughs) going to get one. So I was a little annoyed, but then my call waiting beeps. I said, just a second. And on the other end of the line was Alan Gold, who was at DC. And that failed project of the MLJ characters, those pages were laying around the office at DC. And he saw them and wanted to hire me to do Star Trek Next Generation for DC. And it was about... Close to double my rate at Marvel. So I said, just a second. And I went back to the Marvel editor and said, bye. And then <laughs> <laughs> went to work for DC and um, did uh, first a regular issue of Classic Trek. And then I did uh, uh, Star Trek Next Generation for a couple of years and also did some Wonder Woman. And then Prince had a comic book.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: the artist Prince. Yes. Well, at this time, he wanted to change his name uh, because his his record company essentially owned him. And he wanted to change his name to be the artist formerly known as Prince. Mm-hmm. And so he did that to have a symbol instead of a name. Well, they wanted to launch Prince's new name and symbol in this comic book, because Prince liked comic books. Okay. So I... Uh, Got to draw about half the book where Prince uh, goes flying around the world fighting men with giant scimitars and uh, (laughs) Middle Middle Eastern plane crashes and everything. And, um, you know, it was was fun, but it was really implausible to me. You've got Prince who's like three feet tall and you've got (laughs) these giant people he's fighting all the time, but (laughs) it was still fun. It was like Indiana Jones meets Prince. (laughs) So, And Prince was excited, too. Uh, He would call up my editor, but when Prince would call you, he would not call first. He would have an assistant. Prince will call you in one hour. Prince will call you in 45 minutes. Prince will call you in a half hour. (laughs) Prince will call you in 15 minutes. And then Prince is on the line. Well, this went on for a while, and Prince wanted to call the editor once and called him up and said, hi, this is Prince. And the editor goes, yeah, right. And he hangs up on him. <laughs> and this happened like three times. And finally the assistant calls back, why do you keep hanging up on Prince?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so he had things in there. Like he, he liked Kirstie Alley. And, uh, usually when you do likenesses for books and things, you have to go through licensing agreements and agents. and everything. No, it was Prince. He wanted Kirstie Alley. So poof, we put Kirstie Alley in there. <laughs> So she was in the book as well but uh the book came out and you know i i it was not just another job but in a way it was you know i had to meet a deadline get the pages out but the book was reviewed by you know some rock and roll magazine people and it ended up being a pretty big deal so like i was starting to go to conventions and sell pages and usually the originals wouldn't go for that much at that time but uh the prince pages did and just a, a few years ago i went to san diego and i took some some copies of the comic with me and people would come by how much and i just kind of jokingly say 100 bucks oh yeah sure oh. and i sold out within an hour and i realized going online uh, these comics are going for like 200 bucks a pop now oh wow so, so prince has quite the following
0: yeah he does and you wrote so you wrote the origin story of the the symbol basically that became his name i
1: drew it I drew it
0: you drew, you uh-huh. drew it
1: wow but yeah so that was the i didn't design the symbol but it was the first time anybody ever saw it, it was the, it was the comic book okay sh- shortly after that he became the artist formerly known as prince and then back to prince again eventually but it was uh, I, it was just a fun experience. I, I, I'd i done licensed properties before, you know, several times. And and so you, you realize that when you do a licensed property, well, except for Kirstie Alley, um, <laughs> you're, you're just going to be seen by the by the actors as well as your editor and the studio. And so you realize these actors are approving their images, you know. And, yeah. If they don't like it, they want changes and, and so on. And so, unfortunately, like with Prince, I don't think there were any changes. He seemed pretty pleased with no. uh, what was going on there. And for the most part, it's not a problem. Uh, there are a few instances in Star Trek that were kind of amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was uh, Patrick Stewart. I, I'd been doing the book for a while And nobody was really saying anything, so apparently, you know, here and there, I'd have to change a face, but for the most part, it was going along rather swimmingly. Well, Patrick Stewart then uh, went on his first American talk show experience, and that was on The Tonight Show, and Jay Leno was the guest host, Mm. and I've seen Patrick Stewart, you know, several times being interviewed, He's, he's really an interesting interview, and Seems to be a nice guy. But his first experience was he was all, you know, wired up. And he was going on and on how proud he was to be a socialist and how socialism was great. Hmm. That's not, you know, when Bush was president, that wasn't really a great thing to talk about right. you know, in America.
2: right?
1: And so the next day he went on the set and I heard from my sources in Paramount that uh he wasn't too happy when all of his castmates were teasing him about it, and he got kind of annoyed. And at that time, they chose to rig my pages in, oh. and he flipped through them. and I don't like this one. <laughs> Change this, and I don't want lines on my face. <laughs> and so, I was told to stop putting lines on Patrick Stewart's face.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and being an artist. Uh, this isn't too technical, I hope, but it's difficult to draw people without lines. Right. So, so what I did is, uh, and this is what I thought was really funny later on, I just did a okay. I can't do the heavy lines. I did a stipple effect with the crow, crow pen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just pointillism. It's been around forever, but people who read comics really hadn't experienced that. They used they were used to maybe tone or or brushwork or something, but that's not the kind of thing they really went with. So they saw it, and people really thought it was different. And so this pointillism, which, again, people were doing it on caves back in the prehistoric era, I think.
2: Yeah.
1: But they hadn't seen it before, so they started calling, we did, got letters calling this the skeleton effect.
2: Oh.
1: So, so for any of you art are teachers out there, when you talk about pointillism, you're talking about the skeleton effect. It's just, <laughs> really silly but, um, that went well and then um, I was told to draw Riker uh, and this was from the, the studio you know draw him as up as if he always has a broom up his ass so I kept <laughs> that in mind and also he, I had to keep his weight down he didn't have to keep his weight down but I did <laughs> um, when I would draw him and there they went through a period where uh, I was getting feedback Geordie Labar Burton mm-hmm. and they said uh, start drawing his nose smaller make his lips thinner and I thought that's ridiculous I was doing pretty good portraits I thought
2: yeah.
1: well, finally I got to the point where I'm tired of having to do these redos what I'll do, I'm just going to draw a guy with a visor and then when they do the redo then I'll do the portrait well the guy with the visor sailed on through <laughs> so that was uh, kind of annoying. So I talked. I was talking with Jason Palmer, who was doing the covers for the book. And he called up. and He was having the same problem. Well, he got a hold through Paramount to, to LeVar Burton's office. And we found out LeVar's people were critiquing the work. And he was on the phone with his people when, coincidentally, in the background, LeVar Burton walks into the room and sees the artwork and goes, Oh, I love that. I'd like to buy that when you're done with it. And so that was the end of the complaints from LeVar Burton's people, Ah. but they didn't, you know, he's obviously an African-American. He's a good looking guy, but Mm -hmm. he has bigger lips than I do. And a a flatter nose than I do. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that, you know? Yeah. So so he had people that were, I don't know, trying to derace him or something. But anyway, um, except for those things, it was, it was pretty nice to have people approving of the work. And I was very careful. Um, I was mindful of two things. One, I was doing a comic book, so I had to consider comic book fans. And I was doing a Star Trek book, so I had to consider those fans. So I made sure I had details like the Okuda that would be on the, the screens on the ship mm-hmm. throughout the Enterprise. I made sure the ones that were in sick bay belonged in sick bay and the ones that were on the bridge belonged on the bridge. And, uh, I was able to do things, a cards ready room that they couldn't do on the show because of, you know, physical interference. I could, I could do down shots from a distance that they couldn't do. Uh, one thing we got a, a couple of letters about was having, uh, a shot from inside Livingston's Aquarium looking out into the cards ready room and so they couldn't stick a camera in the aquarium but I could Right? yeah so it was just interesting to do all of that and try to relate it in a way that would you know the fans would like it of both the television show and comic book fans
0: and I'm I'm sure with the the, uh, fan base of Star Trek being as kind of, they're kind of rabid fans, a lot yes. of them. What kind of experiences have you had with that fan base in particular, uh, in, in accordance to, like, if you do an appearance or something like that?
1: Uh, pretty good. They they liked the fact that we were doing stories on a lot of the ancillary characters uh, that, you, that didn't get a lot of screen time on the show. Okay. And on the show, they had at one point, you know, Ensign Rowe, who had been fairly popular, Mm -hmm. Uh, well, she's leaving for Starfleet. Well, You know, you don't know why, but she takes off. Well, we were able to do a three-issue story arc dealing with why Ensign Rowe decided to go off to Starfleet Academy. Um, We could do characters, you know, like Broccoli and have him in there, Um, Dr. Salar. And so they seemed to really appreciate that because fans would, of course, they they liked Worf and, and Troy and all of that, but... There were a lot of characters that became very popular who were just, you know, kind of on the periphery and they couldn't afford to do in an hour television program focus on these ancillary characters. So that was good. So there seems to be a lot of appreciation with that. And there were a lot of very flattering letters that would come in because they liked recognizing the characters without having to read the word balloons because the artist would you know, slough off or something. Sure. So I got a good reputation from that. And and that was, that was satisfying as well.
0: Very nice. Now, throughout your, your career, um, a a lot of people can say that they kind of had brushes with certain people that were, you know, were big names. These people were your contemporaries. You basically worked right alongside of them. Um, You've already mentioned uh, Jack Kirby. Yes. Yeah, do you have some stories about, about working with, with Jack Kirby or, or any kind yeah, of I, relationship that you'd like to share?
1: Sure. I didn't work with Jack, but what I did do is I got to know him a little bit. I would see him in San Diego. Okay. And then one time he came to Vegas to do a comic store signing. And so I saw him there, and the next day, Roz, his wife, and I got to go and got to eat. We went to the champagne brunch at the old MGM Grand. And it was very interesting because we didn't talk that much about the comics industry. He had a fascinating life and uh, had some interesting stories about World War II. One I used at my mom's funeral, matter of fact, because he was talking about mothers at one point. And he was in Patton's army and they were uh, in Europe. And he said that when you would go out on a patrol, if you didn't have officers with you, and you run into a German patrol and they didn't have officers with them, nobody wanted to die. So people would just throw rocks at each other and, and say, you know, F Hitler and uh, FDR is some bitch, you know, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> but he said somebody would always make the mistake of saying about something about somebody's mother, then the shooting would start. Yeah. And uh, he was telling a story one time they were in a village in Europe and. Uh, They were trying to clear it out, and then they heard a a tank, a panzer tank, come down the street, and they went and hid. And he said one of the people in their unit had what they then called battle fatigue. Uh, He flipped out and charged the tank, firing his M1 rifle. Oh, wow. And And they thought, we're all dead. All of a sudden, the tank stops, and one of the bullets had wildly gone into the visor and killed the driver inside
2: Wow.
1: And, and, and uh, we talked a little about uh, his career. He had gone to DC Comics after a long stint at Marvel. And uh, he, his idea that he wanted to write and draw the new gods. But then the other books he wanted to write would have, like Steve did go do Mr. Miracle, uh, have Don Heck draw the forever people. And uh, before DC said, no, we want you to do everything. But he did, um, he mentioned that Ditko would be doing Mr. Miracle. And I said, I thought, well, Ditko would be a good fit for Mr. Miracle. And Jack replied, yes, uh, he's a fine draftsman. But Roz, his wife, blurted out, but all of his people look Polish. (laughs) (laughs) Which was great, because that that was what it was. They were were a unit. They were always together. Very grounded, very down to earth. Um, But she would you would hear what Jack would say and then she would say what she really thought and she didn't hold back <laughs> so there's some some interesting stories especially about another editor I worked with that I'm not going to go into because I you know yeah. one of us is still alive okay. um, <laughs> and and so it was just fascinating uh, to see that and then after we ate we' were walking down the hall of the casino and Jack was always brainstorming and we came by a little... Uh, stand that had some folders for a game called Highlight that then was going on at the MGM, and he picked up the, the brochure and flipped through it and said, "Hey, you could have this guy throwing a bomb and do this and that and everything." He was always observing. He was always thinking. He's always, uh, you know, going off on things to the point where I guess Roz was was driving everywhere. She drove him to Vegas mm-hmm. because Jack would his mind would start wandering and they would end up on a curb somewhere. So (laughs) by this time, Jack wasn't driving anymore. But uh, it it was just really nice to have, you know, they say, don't meet your heroes. Uh, But in most of the cases, I would disagree with that. Most of the people I met and admired were pretty good. Um, I did a poster for Stan. I don't think Stan ever knew my name or anything uh he just would call me the artist you know <laughs> and so stand by this time it developed into a character but jack and a lot of the others i met like jerry robinson and gene colon and so on were, were very you know grounded and down to earth they they got into the industry to do the books and the idea of any kind of celebrity didn't really occur to them where I think Jack was kind of, or Stan was kind of always plotting in that direction. Okay. Um, Another interesting person I got to meet um, was Julie Newmar. Okay. I had had done a, one of the things I did when I was working for the Vegas Hotels is I did a poster on the 35th anniversary of the Sands Hotel. And it was, you know, where the Rat Pack hung out and everything. Mm -hmm. It had... uh, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, uh, Frank Sinatra, Danny Thomas, uh, Red Skelton, just go down the line, had everybody on it. And I took this poster with me to San Diego, because I was looking for some painted cover work. And I walked by and Julie Newmar was was setting up her table for autographs later on. And she saw that and wanted to see it. And I was old enough to know the first time I saw Julie Newmar on the screen was in Little Abner. She played a character called Stupefying Jones, and she was in other movies that I knew about long before Batman came along.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And so we were talking over that poster, and she was telling me some showbiz stories and stuff, and uh, then people started lining up to get a signing or get photos from her. So I said, well, you know, thank you. It's been very nice talking to you. And she passed the chair next to her and says, oh, no, sit down here. Which, (laughs) yeah. Okay. You know, Um, so I'm sitting down next to her and and these aging fanboys are shooting me dirty looks as as we continue our conversation. (laughs) And the thing I'll always remember is when at one point I mentioned the writer Stanley Ralph Ross, who was pretty well known at that time. I said, I thought his writing was really su- suitable to your comedic timing. And she drummed her fingers on the table and said, my, weren't you the observant little boy?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so anyway, um, that was very memorable. And then you flash forward to probably a decade later. In Las Vegas, there's a convention and it was going to be Adam Weston Burr Ward there. Well, Uh, about two weeks before this convention started, uh, I was contacted by someone who wanted to cover with their pictures on it. And he, he was this guy who commissioned me was going to have Adam and Bert sign it. Well, right before this time happened, uh, Adam West passed away suddenly. Mm. And so the, the guy called me up and said, well, I change it. They're going to have, uh, Burt Ward, they're going to have Julie Newmar and Lee Merriweather, who was in the Batman movie back in 66. So I did that, and I I put Julie in her Catwoman costume, the regular one, and then put Lee Merriweather in this one leopard thing that she wore only in that movie. So I did that, and got it to the guy, and I'm at the convention at my table, and before too long, uh, Lee Merriweather comes walking down the aisle trying to track me down. (laughs) <laughs> because she was so impressed with the cover and I thought this is amazing you know two cat women now right and uh, I asked if she wanted to take some pictures and she said I thought you'd never ask and she came behind my wife took a bunch of pictures and I got to talk to her very nice so I I told people after that um, okay I, in about 30 years I want Michelle Pfeiffer to come walking down the aisle because <laughs> that would that would be the hat trick
0: yes it it would so,
1: But it was again, it was interesting that uh, there have been other people, uh, celebrities at conventions who would come to my table, which is really bizarre because people, you know, line up for hours to see these people. And and yet, you know, uh, Kevin Sorbo came by because he he, uh, liked my cartoon work, the the editorial cartoon work, Um. and he brought Lou Ferrigno over. And so it's just really strange. Yeah. That, you know, I'm, hey, I'm supposed to be paying you guys to talk to me, and they show up at my table.
0: Sure, they come to you.
1: Yeah. yeah that... All because I got a Zoro comic book when I was four.
0: <laughs> now, you, you mentioned uh, Stanley. And yeah. you, so you worked at Marvel when he was the publisher. Although you said you really didn't have a lot of interaction, he didn't know your name. What was it like to work work with him or work under him and uh, kind of be there at the same time?
1: It was kind of... I didn't see him when I was at Marvel, but years later, I was contacted um, by his people, and what had happened is the San Francisco Giants wanted to have a Stan Lee Day, and they wanted a poster to have, a, like, a limited-edition poster of 250 to have it there at the stands when they, then
2: they would have an event with Stan after the game where they would do Q&As and so on. Okay.
1: So I did this poster and at the time I was going to be going to Seattle later on. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to uh fly me up to San Francisco and Stan. And Sergio Romo who was on the poster was their their big pitcher at the time. And so we were going to do that but the all-star game break came up and and sergio was in the all-star game so they couldn't do that so they had a film crew come to my house and a film crew go to stan's house in beverly hills and then they edited it together to make it look like we're in the same room okay so we're, we're we do this and we uh i think you can still go on my facebook fan page and see the video but We're working on this, and I start on it and send off what I have at that point. And then one of Stan's people said, Well, you can't have Spider-Man socks on Stan. can't have anything Marvel. Even though Stan now is the face of Marvel, Marvel didn't want him doing anything (laughs) that was for them directly, because it was kind of strange, because what had happened is... If you read the early Marvel comics, like when I was buying them off the stands, it was always you know Stan would always say very bluntly you know what he was doing and what Jack and Steve were doing and so on, and it was it was really I thought an honest appraisal because you know Steve Ditko was plotting the thing and Stan was dialoguing it and pretty much the same with Kirby, and Kirby was always largely taking care of the plots and so on, but when, Stan's Uncle, it's more of a cousin, but they, call, they called him Uncle, um, who owned Marvel Comics, wanted to sell it, they, when people are selling corporations they want to know, hey, are there any lawsuit landmines out there? Mm-hmm. Is anyone going to come along and claim their portion of it? Well, Marty Goodman, who owned the company, oh no, my, my boy genius nephew Stan did it all. And so that's when you would start to see a change uh, Stan was doing a lot of college speaking at that time and, and he was building up a legend. And this was kind of squeezing out the contributions of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and so on because they needed to have one face on Marvel to be able to sell the company. Sure. And Stan was kind of that figurehead until he, you know, finally left years later. And so, because of that, um, Stan began to develop more of a character and so I was talking to his people who were saying you know you can't do this you can't do that and then um, I finally got to the poster to where I wanted it and then I was on a phone call with seven people (laughs) and uh, just interesting things like in the the ballpark you know where the Giants play AT&T Park um, they had areas uh there where they would sell advertising. And if there was a sponsor for this poster, you know, I wanted to put a put them on it in the background, but oh no, Nintendo owns that spot. You have to leave it blank in the stadium because Nintendo is not sponsoring this. (laughs) And so there were all kinds of legalities with this going on. And so finally got the poster out, but I had warned them that I, I had to go to Seattle at some point and I had to be available to sign the posters in Vegas, you know, by a certain date. I said, if if I'm not going to be here by that date, I can't sign them. Oh, don't worry, there's no problem. Well, there ended up being a problem uh, in the printing, and so it was delayed. So I didn't sign any of the posters. So they had, in San Francisco, they had the event, Stan and Sergio signed these things. But I didn't sign them. And so it ended up being something where I would be like at a San Diego convention. Someone would want me to sign this poster. Well, it's the only thing I ever charge anybody any money to sign because I know once I sign it, it would go up on eBay as the three people on this poster, uh, Mm -hmm. who did the work have all signed it. Yeah. So, so then Stan's daughter came to town to Vegas and she called me up and, and wanted to talk to me about a project. And she had me sign like 10 of them for her dad. And then we had a long discussion and found out some interesting stuff about early Marvel. She worked there. And so I learned a little bit more about how the family operated. And uh, it, it was uh, interesting. I, this is one of those things I can't really talk about a whole lot because... sure. Uh, well, one, I signed a non-disclosure agreement, but then there were a lot of legal things that happened after that. Uh, I think Stan's end was kind of sad, because mm-hmm. once he achieved this status, and with the attendant money and everything that that brought him, it also brought a lot of bloodsuckers around Stan. Sure. And after his wife died, I think he was left open to a lot of abuse and uh, and everything. So, uh, Boy, I hate to sound like a downer, but you know, you see what happens when people, you know, can get a lot of fame. And I contrast that with seeing Jack Kirby and Roz driving around in their car (laughs) around Southern California and Nevada and so on, and seeing how grounded and well-adjusted they were because they didn't have people.
0: Yeah, yeah, they had themselves that kind of took care of business.
1: Yeah, and they had their family, you know. And so... um, that was one thing, you know, Jack, you'd be at a convention and you would be talking to him, or he could be talking to some, you know, big foreign corporation head, and if a little kid came up and wanted an autograph, that little kid was the most important person in the world. Yeah. And so, you, you just see that, and it was very touching. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off on the thing with Stan, but... No, it no, you're just, good, yeah. It was a sobering life lesson to see what happens, you know, with a lot of fame and success sometimes.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, you know, we've, we've covered a lot of, uh, of material, but I, I know we're just kind of hitting the tip of the iceberg because you've got 50 years worth. What, yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what are some milestones maybe that we didn't mention from your career that you wanted to mention?
1: Um, I guess about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I started doing, uh, movie premieres at, uh, the Las Vegas Palms Theaters, the Brendan Palms Theaters. And I would do a poster for a movie and they would bring in, you know, one of the minor stars of the movie to sign with me. And the first one was the Star Trek uh, movie that came out in 2009. Okay. And uh, I did these posters for that and I'm sitting there and they had uh, Clifton Collins Jr. who was the Romulan bad guy in the movie. Mm but you didn't see him. You saw him without his makeup. And so people didn't know who he was. So we'd be there outside the theater and these girls came out to me and said, are you anybody? <laughs> and I said, well, I like to think so, but I think he's the guy you want. Yeah. And uh, then we did the Twilight film, uh, one of the Twilight films, and I didn't know anything about Twilight, so I had to rent one of the movies and figure <laughs> out what was going on there. And there were, one of the wolves in the movies was sitting next to me and he's, he was signing, but the poor guy was 20 years old and couldn't, he was in Vegas and he couldn't do anything. <laughs> and you had all these 14 year old girls trapped in 40 year old women's bodies, right. swarming him, you know? And, um, but then I did, uh, with Captain America, Thor, Iron Man and Hulk, did those individual posters. And, uh, I got the idea ahead because I, I told you know, in two thousand and twelve there's going to be an Avengers movie that has all these people from these movies. So when I designed the posters, I did it so you know, for each movie that would come out, you'd have a poster. But I had the backgrounds, so like Captain America's Shield would go down into Iron Man's poster and Thor's Hammer would go down into the Hulks poster.
2: Oh, okay so if
1: you got all if you got all four, you'd put all four posters together you know, assemble the Avengers. Sure. And you'd have a big Avengers poster. Oh, wow. That was fun. That's one thing I was kind of proud of is as old as I am, I like to think of new things and I try new media. Uh, Much of the work I do, of course, it's live at, at conventions. So I do sketches there live with watercolor and so on. But much of my work now is digital. Uh, My editorial cartoon work is done on the computer on a Cintiq uh, screen and I just finished a wraparound cover for visitors publishing on a book called across space and it's like all digital and uh, I don't when I first started this doing the digital stuff I hadn't planned on it but uh, I had a deadline and I, I couldn't have time to get my paints out and everything. So I did it in the computer and I didn't understand the computer process of it. I just treated it like a painting. So when I premiered these uh, assembled Avengers posters at one show, they, somebody said, what program did you use to do this in? And I said, you know, well, Corel photo paint. And they said, well, you can't do that. (laughs) And I said, "Well, well, I did. Uh, but people who know computers, Know what these programs do, these illustration and painting programs do, and they they're acquainted with the programs. I wasn't because I was in a hurry to get it done. I couldn't learn it, so I there was a photo retouch program. I just treated paint like paint, you know. I, yeah. Uh, you you want to get a good flesh tone? You've got twenty, you know, twenty percent magenta, twenty percent yellow, and and you do gradations of that and. If you're going to do the Hulk, you just mix some blue and yellow and, you know, it's just a painting. So my, my digital work doesn't look any different from my, uh, regular work.
0: That's interesting. Yes. Yeah. That's very interesting.
1: Yeah. So it's just, I find it exciting to like, I I posted a thing a while ago on, on Facebook from years ago. Uh, there's markers called Copic markers Mm -hmm. and, um, I just bought some and somebody wanted a Walking Dead cover as a sketch. And I just took these out without thinking and doing it. And I was about halfway through and I realized I've never used these markers before. I I hope this works. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it did, you know, And because you, it kept me on my toes. Sure. And I'm always trying to learn new things. The digital thing makes a difference, though, because you don't have original art per se to sell. And so, like, when I did the the Stan poster, I'd signed a contract and I had put in the contract that I would get any original art back. Well, as it ended up, I I did parts of it, you know, like uh, brush and ink on on board, but I scanned it in and painted it in the computer. And one of Stan's people um, said that, well, Stan gets the original back. And I said, well, no, it's in the contract that I would get any original back. And it went back and forth till i realized wait a minute this is mostly digital there is no original yeah and and i I, same thing happens i would i get letters occasionally somebody will see an editorial cartoon and they'll say you know hey i'd like i'd love to buy the original and it's like well yeah if there were original i'd love to sell it (laughs) (laughs) but it's just it's just in the ether and that's kind of amazing because I, I'd been doing this like I said since I was four and now I do things that look when they're printed like anything else I've done but in reality they don't exist you know on something physical
0: yeah you, so. you don't have anything but the uh, what what you've created there's nothing that you can tangibly show someone it's you know or yeah, hand, hand so, to someone yeah
1: so when I went to Omaha art school I realized, you know, a number of years ago that everything I learned there I I don't use anymore. I don't do hand color separations anymore. I don't use X-acto blades to cut zipatone. I I don't uh and this made a difference uh because At one point, when I was doing Star Trek, this is like 1993, I started to do that. Um, I had gotten my first computer a few years before that. And when I found out I was going to be the inker on the Star Trek book, I realized, you know, hey, I can do these portraits, uh, pencil and ink them, and I can scan them into the computer and reduce them down. And so I was doing layouts on... 8.5 8.5 by 11 vellum paper and pencil and scanning it into the computer and I had the DC artboard and I could print it out in the pencils were very rough but I could do it in non-repro blue in other words instead of scanning things in digitally you used to have a stat camera and the stat camera couldn't see like a 20% scion and so I would scan it out and then I could ink it and I could I would have the basic structure of the drawing there, but there wouldn't be any uh, pencil marks to erase. Okay. And so I was doing that. And it was just common sense. You want something in non repro blue, you do it and you print it out on that board. Well, I was sending the stuff in to be lettered. And the letterer was aghast. He'd never seen anything like that. And I'd mentioned, well, I used a computer for it. And so, ironically, I had this reputation in the early 90s for being the first computer guy in
2: comics
1: (laughs) when all I was doing, was taking my pencil drawings scanning them in and printing them out. Right. And that's, that's all I knew how to do. And I just, before that shortly learned how to put the computer in and turn it on. So I wasn't (laughs) really doing anything, you know, science fiction wise, but you know, people thought I was living in the Jetsons world back then.
0: And you know what? You let them believe that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You
0: You let them. Yeah. You're the first. Yes, I am. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, and then also at the time, you know, we were doing everything with FedEx. You know, you would they would FedEx a box of artboard and scripts. And then you would, in eight-page increments, send it back to New York. And then the New York would send it to Connecticut to get lettered by hand. Then it would be sent back to New York, back to me. I would ink it, send it back to New York. Well, that's a full week of nothing but mailing. So what I would do is proposed to my editor, you know, what we, hey, you know what we could do? And we had modems then. Um, I could do these pages in the and have them in the computer and then put the phone in the modem and it would take all night to send a page. <laughs> but we could do that. Yeah. And And my editor goes, well, no, down in production they work with stone knives and bearskin rugs. And so <laughs> we can't do that. Well now, guess what? That's what everybody does, and they allowed people to uh, work from South America, Central Europe, and everything else, and send their pencils in as JPEGs, and that has allowed what the comic book companies pay the artists uh, much less money, because you know you can get somebody from South America to work ten cents on the dollar, sure. and so. Prices have dropped dramatically for people working in comics today. Hmm. They make about a third to two-thirds of what I made 25 years ago.
0: Oh, wow. Just because of technology?
1: Yeah. That and sales, uh, low sales. Okay. uh, Jim Shooter said some time ago that Marvel Comics hasn't made money for years. But it's kind of like a farm team in baseball. Uh, The movie companies are using comics... For material and so they can afford to have comic books be a lost leader as far as that goes
0: yeah in order to get the movies
1: Now, the nice thing about technology is that it's afforded people who come up with ideas to keep the ideas for themselves uh as far as copyright ownership and desktop publishing has allowed them to print things and and people have gofundme campaigns to raise money you know. To be able to put the books out. And so I think comics that are independent in nature have allowed for a lot more innovation and a lot more interesting things to happen. That, you know, working by committee through the comic book companies and the fact that they would own practically everything they do. I mean, the first stuff I did for DC on that talent program, they allowed us to copyright it, you know. So Okay. Like, I, I half-owned Jericho Pine, for instance, if anybody oh, wow. cares. Yeah. Anybody that wants to see any more Jericho Pine books, let me know.
2: <laughs> but,
0: they'll be you out, know. right? You'll, you'll
1: yes, <laughs> but I, I won't be doing Batman for any anytime soon.
0: So. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, with, with a, a 50-year-long career, I know that we can't cover everything. I kind of want to ask you some of your your favorites or some of your... Uh, your opinions on on some of your work now first off I want to know what was the name of that first comic strip that you worked on in the, the Fremont Tribune
1: it was called Andy's.
0: Andy's and it was
1: it was yeah it was an anthology strip uh, sponsored by Andy's pizza and I uh, I give great credit to the man who sponsored it because he let me just go nuts and there would be a mention somewhere in there about Andy's pizza but I did a bunch of things. Well, I did a satire of Bonanza and Planet of the Apes called Planet of the Italian Cowboy Apes. <laughs> I did uh, Nick, Nick Gusso Private Detective, and I did two of those. And ironically, you know, in 1977, I knew about Star Wars, you know, before it hit big. Mm-hmm. So I did a thing called Pizza Wars, and I had uh, Luke lukewarm Alvender, uh, Princess, um, Princess Toto, I think I don't know, I don't remember, but <laughs> I, I had heard what happened is, uh, and this ended up actually Roy Thomas kind of saved Marvel because Marvel was really kind of in the dumper, and he got a, he got the rights to Star Wars, and put out the Star Wars comic, and that sold like gangbusters. But anyway, the comic strip I did. It was just, you know, a funny thing. I got to do whatever I wanted. Um, Got in trouble a couple of times uh, (laughs) because of some of this stuff. But but to his credit, Andy stood behind me. and, And it ran from like 1973 to 1977, I think, in the Fremont Tribune. Oh, wow. And so it really taught me about making deadlines, which was back then a sacred thing. Um, and getting things out on time and it I learned to get it out really fast because I would do it on my lunch hour at Schwager's <laughs> and I would just like take a marker and I got to the point where I wasn't hardly roughing anything out and it, it taught me to uh, use line economy uh, how to spot blacks it was a good experience and I got paid for it yeah. not a whole lot but still it was just something there that could be used and and the nice thing is is they had a an independent survey company come to fremont and we had a 90 uh recognition on the ad ad front where we beat out pizza hut and uh all the major company godfathers oh wow because people really would rather read something funny and they would realize, oh, it's sponsored by Andy's. Mm-hmm. And so it, people would talk about it a lot. It was, it was a nice little ego booster, you know, in my early 20s.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, to be able to do something like that. And, again, credit goes to Andy for letting me do that. Because the stuff would go to the paper. He wouldn't even see it first. Okay. So he trusted me quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to betray that trust.
0: Right. Now, what would you say... Uh, let, let's go with what what would you say is the most popular comic that you've worked on or the most popular uh, series that you worked on?
1: Um, I, I'd say one the, as far as comics go, I, there, there was, I did a, one issue of What If uh, X-Men. And to this day, I have people coming up saying, you know, uh, oh, that was my favorite X-Men story. And, uh, you know, I look at them and I do the math and realize, well, they were like a zygote when that thing came out. Because this is like, you know, 1990.
2: Yeah.
1: And so that comes up a lot. The Warlock thing comes up a lot, uh, I think, because it has the origins of a lot of the key characters, you know, in the Marvel Universe. And um, also Warlock is going to be in the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Oh, and in the comics, we killed off Thanos by using Warlock, but they—they they changed, you know, the Infinity Gauntlet, key parts of the of the story in the movies, and so that's one I'm proud of because that and uh, the Silver Surfer story, which is right after the Infinity Gauntlet, and the X Men story I mentioned earlier, all those have been printed in hardcover editions, uh, which I found out about by accident. Um, I was signing one time and and this guy came up and he had two huge, thick volumes of books and wanted me to sign it. And I said, well, I'll gladly sign it, but I didn't have anything to do with this. And he goes, oh yeah, you did. And he opens it up and there's my stories. Hmm. Um, Marvel had a bankruptcy back in 1993 and that allowed them to cancel all the contracts regarding royalties. So I, I was unaware these things were being reprinted Okay, uh, and of course they're acquired by Disney, and you know Disney doesn't have any money to pay people like me.
2: No, they- so
1: <laughs> so um, that stuff is out there. So it's it's part of a, a, an interesting thing because, like, when they had you know Avengers Endgame and and those movies coming out, I, I mean I would see stuff in these movies that I drew part of it, you know, and that's kind of fun, and A fun legacy to have. Yeah, But the Dallas Strip was was quite popular. I got letters as far away as Denmark uh, for Dallas. Oh, wow. And then Next Generation was was big. I had to turn down... uh, That's one thing about doing a lot of work is I had to turn down some nice things. When I was working on uh, Star Trek, DC had Christmas parties on the East Coast and West Coast. And I was invited to go to a party on the set of Lois and Clark oh. with the stars of the show. And I couldn't go because I had to do the work. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in, it, on Star Trek, I was invited to a convention in Paris, France, and I had to turn that down because I was too busy doing the thing. Oh, wow. uh, so now that I have more time, nobody's calling me anymore. <laughs> well, we need Except to get you. To and this is, Hey, this makes up for all of it.
0: Sure. <laughs> Now I I, I had a, you brought something up there, and I have a question about. You said when that bankruptcy happened, it allowed them to cancel some contracts and things about royalties. Yeah. Okay. Would that, uh, would that kind of make it to where sometimes when when we were researching, we would see that you had worked on a certain title. However, it would say like paperback edition, or it would say it would have different verbiage as to different editions. Would that account for maybe some of the credit not being granted where it should have been?
1: No, I don't think so. I think they can do that with impunity. Oh. Um, and also, there, companies are notorious, even in the age of the internet, of, of things being messed up. I, I've noticed there are different books that, hey, I worked on that, but my name won't be on it. And yet there was another one where I, I'm credited as the letterer on a book, and I, I've never even seen the book. Let alone lettered it. Oh wow! Uh, so there's just misinformation out there all the time about things. Um, I, for instance, I was when I was doing Next Generation, I'd, I'd read the letters pages, and there was one where the assistant editor would usually handle the, the letters, and somebody asked a question about this book I worked on with someone else. And they wanted to know the credit breakdown and they said, Oh, they both did it. Well, no, it was me, but the associate editor never called me to get the proper credit, but you know, it's, it's not so much, you know, it happens. It happens all the time. I mean, even with the post rated for Stan, uh, Stan posted it on his Twitter feed and on it was, you know, this Stan of the San Francisco giants. And I did all the artwork, but people were saying, hey, Stan, that's a great job on the art. Are you gonna do the Dodgers next? And <laughs> and my wife, my wife sees it and thinks, you know, she's really upset because she, she knew what happened. And I said, well, no, this it doesn't bother me any because number one, people who don't know anything about the industry think, Daryl, you've arrived, you're working with Stan Lee. And people in the industry know, they know the score that Stan is taking It was his habit to take credit for things he didn't do, you know, but that's the way it would be. And so it was a win-win situation for me. Now, people like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, they would have a right to be disgruntled because they were doing things like creating Spider-Man and the Avengers and Fantastic Four and Hulk and Thor and so on. And in later years, uh, when they were trying to protect uh, the company, they had to make Stan the, you know, the guy who did it all. yeah. And so that's just the way the business worked. And so it didn't bother me any, but you know, people hear these stories and, and, uh, their websites, you know, really people are really down on Stan, uh, for taking credit and everything. But you know, you, you look at the area and the era it was done in and everything. And I don't, you know, Say it's a good thing, but I understand why things came about.
2: Sure, um, sure.
1: Legal, legal th- contracts and politics always affect these sort of things.
0: Oh yeah, um, yeah.
1: D.C. had a thing where, as an incentive to creators, anything you would create that would go into another medium, uh, you would get a percentage of. Oh. And so, like Jerry Conway created a bunch of characters that ended up on you know, the Gotham TV show and other things. And then by this time, Warner communications zone DC. And so their lawyers would say, well, wait a minute, you created this character, but it's, it, it was in Superman and it's derivative of Superman. So therefore you don't get anything.
2: Well, um, really.
1: So these kind of things have really a lot of the major talents, uh, back in the day who wanted to do comics, um, it made a lot of people basically say well i'm not going to create anything new uh because they'll just take it and i'll save that for later on in my career when i do my own book and i think that that's hurt uh the comic book industry i think uh jim shooter and dick giordano both uh at uh marvel and dc respectively tried to make movements in the 80s to tell to help Give owner, partial ownership to people and and do things, and, and a lot of it has been nullified by lawyers after the after the big corporations picked them up. Yeah. Um, but I knew when I was doing the stuff, most of this was known. So I I realized what I was getting into when I did comics. I was working on if I was working on a licensed property. Uh, one time I was watching television and on uh, Star Trek Voyager. They encountered this one alien race, and I saw it, and I thought, "Holy cow! I I created that," <laughs>
2: <You know? laughs>
1: and and it's like now, I, you know, I could get mad and say, "Well, I was just paid a page rate, you know, and they ripped me off." Well, no, I knew going into it. I'm working on a licensed property. Anything I do for them, they own. Sure. You know, I I, I was paid handsomely for what I did, but. They could take anything of mine and do whatever they wanted to with it because they owned the property. So I didn't get upset at that. I was flattered that they they took because I, I there was an alien race I I based on Doctor Bunsen Honeydew from the Muppets, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't think they realized it. And so when they did it, you know, they 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 made them look more grizzled and everything. But it, I just kind of chuckled at that because. <laughs> You know, I, well, it's only fair. I took it from the Muppets, and they took it from me. Right. That's
0: great. So we, we talked about your, the most popular titles that, that you worked on. What would you say is your favorite?
1: Mm, good question. Um, retrospect, in retrospect, um, I, I saw it. Dallas I hadn't looked at the pages or the the artwork for a long time but back in 2008 I had an art show somewhere and they wanted to see a good retrospective of my career so I I opened up the box and took out these Dallas pages and I thought you know the draftsmanship was going to be really bad because I was still in my 20s when I started it and I looked at it and it wasn't that bad but I was impressed that the storytelling was really good and uh I'd forgotten. And again, things are cumulative in your career. And and sitting those lunch hours and batting out those Andes ads taught me how to do things that would reproduce well in a newspaper. Um it would have to be out on time. And it had to be really clear to the reader as to what was going on. And also being in a in a newspaper. I subscribed to a Chicago newspaper because the Dallas strip wasn't in Vegas. And so I would open up the, the comic pages and I would see my competition all around me. Hmm. Um, not peanuts because you know, peanuts was a lot simpler, but stuff like Rex Morgan, Mary worth. Sure. Uh, strips like that. And I realized that, okay, I'm dealing with a licensed property. I made sure that I would have at least one of the three or four panels that would be in the daily strip. I would have a very graphic, high contrast image of one of the stars of the show and that I thought of the reader opening up the newspaper and saying, Oh, it's J.R. Ewing down there. You yeah. know, Rex Morgan's wearing that same suit, but there's J.R. wearing a golf outfit, <laughs> and, you know, J.R. Ewing can kick butt over Rex Morgan any day. And, uh, you know, putting, uh, Pam Ewing in a sexy dress will distract the reader from Mary Worth right So so it was, and and, and just seeing that you know uh, was helpful and so I I suppose that and um, the Jericho Pine strip the western I did I was impressed with that because back then I was trying it was my first you know major book and it was I I did a lot of research on it and that was another thing that, that I learned to do now it was one of the keys to the success of the Star Trek strip and seeing the letters uh, from some of the fans. Uh, I think the, the worst thing I saw was somebody wrote a letter saying Daryl Skelton did his um, usual. I, I forgot the term uh, average work or something like that. And that was uh, kind of funny, but. For the most part, the letters were very flattering because I was succeeding as what I was supposed to do, and that is uh, bring those characters to life on a two-dimensional page. And so, I think whatever I was I'm working on at the time is my favorite thing at the time. Okay. But to answer your question, I think the Dallas run and the Next Generation run uh, was that. I, th- I probably would have had more fun with Wonder Woman, but it, for whatever reason at the time, uh, they they wanted Wonder Woman to be wearing cowboy boots, jeans, her top with the blue jean jacket on top.
0: Okay, I remember this. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that was kind of odd. Yeah. And then I did get a script. I thought I was going to really love this because I got a script for a Wonder Woman story, and the Flash was in it. And I thought, all right, time you know to channel my inner Carmen Infantino and draw the Flash in super speed. Well, in the script, it was like the Flash is unconscious the entire issue. Uh, the villain is holding him up. Wonder Woman is carrying him. Uh, he's lying in a pool of water. Uh, just nothing. And I thought, rats, this this blows. But then, later on, I realized I'm the only guy to draw the Flash for DC Comics, is where not only does he not move at super speed, he doesn't move at all. <laughs> so, that's my claim to fame, you know, yeah. that nobody else can say. Uh, I might as well be proud of it because that was my only shot at the Flash.
2: Right.
0: Well, speaking of, of that now, is there anything, and it may be the Flash, is there anything that you didn't get the opportunity to work on that you would, would have liked to?
1: I think, um, well, I got it work to work on it, but it never got to fruition, but the Blue Beetle, I think, was, was quite good. And then the Fly, I did... I did an issue of that, and I was talking with Rich Buckler, the editor, and I was writing a two-part story on the reworking, tweaking the origin of the fly, and that didn't get to see the light of day because Rich got fired. Right. Um, But really, there's not a whole lot. Um, uh, Spider-Man, I did get to draw in the Warlock issue. Um, So there's really not a whole lot that I didn't get to. I, I, I think the things like the blue beetle and that those mlj characters i wanted just to show my take on it you know like steve ditko did the blue beetle well here's my take on it and i tried as as hard as i could to take ditko's spin on it and i guess that was more of a pride thing than anything Uh, anybody who works in comics for any length of time it's like doing a, a pilot for a tv show you know tons of things never get seen by anybody So, really, having those things not see the light of day wasn't really all that crushing because, you know, just about everything else did get printed.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, this has been a a very interesting and informative, uh, you know, time for me to to talk with you. But what I usually like to do is, at the end here, kind of give you free reign to say, Anything you want to say to the fans? Any any advice you want to give to someone who might be aspiring to get into the business? The floor is yours to to go.
1: Oh, uh, I really wish I could help with uh, getting into the business, but the business has changed so much. I really don't, you know, have anything to say about that. But, except for the fact, keep working. Always keep working. Always keep sending things out there. Because I think of the the, my first big breaks in the industry Dallas came about because some guy that I didn't think would amount to anything came by and wanted to look at my portfolio and yet a full year later he calls me on the phone because he saw my portfolio Uh, the Star Trek call I got from DC came because of a failed project where pages were laying around on an editor's desk in New York Um, just this last weekend I was at a convention In Anaheim California and one thing I always tell young artists to set up at a booth at a convention is keep drawing the whole time don't look at your phone don't sit there with your arms folded and I sold a a wraparound cover sketch to somebody as soon as I finished it laid it down and came up and bought it well if I had just been waiting for somebody to come by and ask for a commission that wouldn't have sold so the thing that I've done since I was four and is just draw all the time, and you'll improve your craft. And for young artists out there, learn perspective. That will put you ahead of the game of most artists. Um, but as far as getting into the industry now, it's changed so much that uh, there are more opportunities for self-publication and so on. But don't just sit around and draw pinups. Don't draw. Just don't draw. Sit around and draw sexy girls or guys in muscle suits all day. Learn how to draw the real world, and that will put you several steps above other people competing for that kind of work. And don't. I would say stay away from the computer until you master your craft. That's a very difficult thing to do. It was easy for me because I was an old man when computers came around. But nowadays, you know, it's tempting to go on and do that right away. Sure. But uh, it's it's a fun thing to do. You have to realize you're not going to start out making a ton of money at it. But if you keep at it, even though I've never been a really big name, the idea that I'm very proud of is for 50 years I've been making a living as an artist.
0: And that is very impressive and, and something to uh, to be proud of and to celebrate. Uh, you know, doing basically doing what you love have loved since you were a child for a
1: living yeah I, I see you know I would see classmates and on Facebook and social media you know who are retiring and like, oh boy I'm going to retire now I'm going to do what I always wanted to do and I thought well what would I do if I retired draw <laughs> you know I've <laughs> just been doing this and I've enjoyed it so much and of course it is work you have to really uh, doing the when I was doing the comic stuff and the and still doing Uh, work for the Vegas casinos I was working extremely long hours and we had young kids And I made a vow that I was gonna you know to make every football game every recital every soccer game and practice. and so I didn't sleep a whole lot for a while Uh, but I I did get to spend a lot of time with my kids and everything and I got to do what I wanted to do when I was four years old and that's draw comic books that's amazing yeah and amazing. and other things too I mean uh, comics are uh, what I do now a lot when, in regards to seeing people I go to conventions and and I, I have um, and it's really odd to say even at this stage of my career I have fans uh, who come to conventions to see me and that's mind-boggling and uh, I always take a page out from Jack Kirby's book and others people like him who were very kind to me and supportive and i try to do the same to them but it's uh yeah it's a trip to realize that i've gotten to do what i want to do for a living that's that's mind-blowing
0: what what uh, what would you say to those those fans you know if you, if you could just give them a message uh you know those that are listening that might be out to uh, to see it at grand uh, grand comic fest what would you like to say to them right now
1: oh thanks so much for coming and looking forward to it uh part of being an artist is working in solitude late at night (laughs) and so for like um close to over 40 to till about 40 years of that i was working alone so getting out and seeing people who actually took the time to look at my stuff and buy my stuff i'm very grateful and i i love to tell stories i have a lot of memories of people that are no longer with us and so i'm a living link to those who, who went before me and so people seem to enjoy the stories mm-hmm. uh, about different creators and and different things that have happened throughout the years and uh i i love talking to people because i didn't get to talk for like 40 years <laughs>
0: So, if somebody wanted to uh, to keep up with what you're doing, where where would you send them to, to find you uh, online?
1: Um, my uh, website. Um, you don't have to say www anymore. <laughs> Skeletonartist dot and then uh, Facebook is uh, Skeleton Artist, and also Daryl Skelton. I, I post kind of like the same stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, less personal stuff on skeleton artist Instagram, not as much, but I'm there. I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, but being an old guy, um, it's mostly Facebook where the old people have kind of taken over. <laughs> I, I know all the young people have jumped over to Instagram and other places, but it's the most intuitive for myself and it allows you to put up things in an easy manner. Sure. Um, and you get to see what I'm working on now. Uh, what I'm going to be doing, is uh, since this is my is my 50th year. Pretty soon, I'm going to start posting. I think I sent you some of the things of highlights of the career
2: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, show some of the things we've been talking about with some interesting photographs. You can see um, the progression of my career and the regression of my hair uh, as we <laughs> go through. And uh, I'll be doing this probably for a while. I may I I'm I have slowed down quite a bit. As far as as I thankfully, I don't need to turn out two pages of pencils and inks a day anymore. And so I I work at a more relaxed pace, but it's very satisfying emotionally and artistically.
0: And I got one more question for you Is that uh, AMC Javelin still on the road?
1: It, as of last March, last March, no. Uh, I took it out and. Being, one of the things of being on the road so much is I didn't get to, to to drive it on a regular basis. So I took it out, went around the block, and it caught on fire. Oh no! But it's still it's still in good shape, though. It I it's parked in my garage, <laughs> and um, I, I'm wrestling whether or not if I do fix it up again, I would have to constantly drive it. But when I'm on the road so much, I don't really get that chance. So. Uh, I may have to have my survivors deal with that thing.
0: <laughs> and if you guys want to see what uh, what I'm talking about, go to skeletonartist.com. In the 50-year uh, celebration, there is a photograph of Daryl with his uh, AMC javelin that uh, that he launched his career with, basically.
1: And uh, as a parental warning, I'm wearing some some cutoff shorts that are are pretty scandalous <laughs> That is true. <laughs> yeah. So but I got nice legs.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well it has been a pleasure uh, sitting down here and talking with you and uh, kind of reminiscing over your 50 year career. And I, I want to thank you for, uh, for giving me the time to do this and really looking forward to meeting you at, uh, at Grand Comic Fest, which is uh, again April 21st through 23rd out in Grand Island, Nebraska.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, Okay. take care. You too.
1: you like to binge watch tv did you know you could binge listen to podcasts head over to electronicmediacollective.com where they have podcasts for days you like podcasts about wrestling they have that do you like podcasts about tv and film they have that do you like podcasts about horror emc has that too do you like comedy do you like books guess what they've got you covered head over to electronicmediacollective.com Pick your favorite podcast
2: today.